0: To cover For those who were here uh, last week, uh, welcome to week two in our series uh, in the book of Nehemiah. For those who were uh, here or, sorry for those who were not here last week, uh, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the first sermon in the series as I spent uh, quite a lot of time laboring to explain the historic and literary context for this infrequently referenced Old Testament book. But to uh, kind of recap really briefly, Uh, what we read in the first Four verses of the book. Last week, the, the book of Nehemiah is basically the final chapter of the Old Testament, okay? Uh, the nation of Israel had been in exile for uh, 70 years, captive to the Persian Empire, uh, and, and by God's kind providence, the Persian kings had begun to uh, allow the Jews to return uh, home to Jerusalem, but uh, they run into some resistance, okay? And this man, Nehemiah, an Israelite uh, by heritage, who happens to be the cupbearer to the Persian king, Uh, he he hears just a a devastating report that the walls of Jerusalem have been reduced to rubble and the gates have been burned with fire. Uh, To us, uh, as modern people who don't need to rely on city walls and gates anymore, this might be a little bit lost on us contextually, but uh, this was a big deal. This was a big deal to them. A wall around an ancient city was often just as important or even more essential uh, than a strong army for that city. To not have a wall was to basically lack any sense of safety uh, from volatile and aggressive outside forces, okay? And as we're going to find out, Nehemiah, though he had uh, attained a high level of leadership within the, the Persian government, he, he remains a very devout man of God who strongly desires to see the restoration of God's people. And this is evidenced by how uh, he, he, he first describes his, res, his response to the bad news from Jerusalem. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, Israel uh, had been in a sea, of prolonged hardship, okay? And honestly, uh, as we said last week, it, it was largely self-inflicted, as it often is for God's people all the way through Scripture, uh, including for us today. But what we concluded last week was, the, was that though suffering and, and hardship are painful, God uses them for our good to purify us from sin and to renew our commitment to him. And following these things, he, he gives us the opportunity to begin again and to rebuild. Nehemiah gets that. Okay, Nehemiah gets that. And So this morning we're going to see it uh, in his prayer that he records in the remainder of chapter 1. My hope is that we're going to uh, see the importance of, at certain times in our lives, devoting ourselves to a combined practice of prayer. And fasting, so that let's uh, let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, guys, I was working on this sermon for today. I was just struck in a renewed way by the incredible goodness of your grace towards us in Christ, and so we thank you first for your grace this morning. It's the reason that we're all here together, men and women from all different backgrounds who have determined to gather together in this room with one another to do something as intimate as, as sing. It's because of your grace that we just can't help but rejoice together. And so this morning, Lord, as we, as we open to the prayer of Nehemiah and explore the topic of fasting, I pray that this message would just be totally infused with grace, that no one would leave here today feeling like a fast is something that they need to do in order to be more religious or spiritual, in order to earn your smile upon their life, but that it would be clear that Christian fasting is something that we do because of your grace, because we are humbled by it, that you have extended it to us in the gospel and that you just keep pouring it out to us in our constant need. Pray that if fasting has been a topic that has been somewhat confusing to people before today, that this time in, in Nehemiah would give great clarity to the practice and that it would be a, a habit of grace that they begin to weave into their walk with you whenever seems appropriate. So we love you, Jesus, and it's in your name. That we pray, Amen. Something you may not know about me is that uh, in what feels like another lifetime, at this point, when I when I lived in Jacksonville, uh, where I'm from, before I was married to Amy and following the Lord, I actually I um, can't believe I'm going to tell you this. I played guitar in a local uh, alternative rock band. That was my life at that time. Uh, in my young life, I was pretty serious about it because I don't usually uh, commit to things halfway. And uh, for what we were, we were not bad, okay. We we played at some relatively big venues in Jacksonville, like the Murray Hill Theater and Freebird and Jack's Beach and so forth. And it was fun. Uh, don't ask what our name was, and don't ask me for recordings. I will not tell you, and I will not give them to you. But anyway, I'll never forget, uh, we were starting to play around town, uh, and I needed to upgrade some of my gear to be more professional, kind of tour quality, and uh, I'd always dreamed of having a a Mesa all-tube dual rectifier Roadster 100-watt head, which you probably don't know what that is, Um, but it's like an incredibly loud amp like the one on like back to the future where marty mcfly strums his guitar and like flies into the wall okay so <laughs> and it was also incredibly expensive and so man i was just saving every dime i could make i had a few jobs and they didn't pay pay very much and so it it took a little while <clears throat> but i wanted it bad I wanted it bad, and so when I would go out with friends uh, who would eat and drink and do all these things um, that involve spending money, I would not. I would not, Uh, because I had a singular thing as my focus. I wanted that amp. I needed that amp, or at least that's how I felt then. I eventually got it. It was a great amp. Uh, It was everything I hoped, but obviously the Lord had other plans for my life, and so here we are, but maybe you have felt that way about something in your life before, something you wanted so bad you would do whatever it took to get it. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this. For believers in Christ, a deep communion with Christ and a life lived in in faithfulness to his word leading to the advancement of of his kingdom should be that thing that we all want. Amen? Amen? And that's, that, that's an umbrella, all right? So uh, underneath that are uh, just a myriad of things we want badly as Christians, right? We want our, want our kids to grow up, uh, to trust the gospel. We want our marriage to be a gospel light in a dark world. Uh, we want to be uh, faithful gospel witnesses to our lost coworkers and, and neighbor, na- our neighbors and so forth. And we, we want our church or some ministry within our church that we're particularly committed to uh, to be successful, right? We want all these things. But here's what I also know. That's an ideal, isn't it? Like, that's, that's an ideal. Most of you would agree with me that that's what Christians should want over and above everything else. But if we were really honest, which I know that's hard. Or if someone were to give a truly transparent report on our lives with specific focus on our commitments and our, our strongest desires based on how we spend our money, uh oh, or how we spend our free time, I don't know about you, but for me, from time, to th- from time to time, I think that it's possible, even probable, we might see some discrepancy. We might see some discrepancy there. Just to be straight with you, here's where here's where I get off track the most. I want what God wants for my life, and my family, and my church. I just want it the way I think it should happen, right? Anybody else? That's just me. (laughs) That's That's a tricky little trap, isn't it? We feel so pious and sure that we're, we're not wrong for what it is that we want, but all kinds of anxiety and frustration and bitterness and even outright idolatry crops up in our hearts when things aren't going according to plan. Just me? Okay. Rabbit trail. As believers... We know that a deep communion with Christ and a life lived in faithfulness to his word, leading to the advance of, of, of his kingdom, should be the thing that we all want. But the reality is we all fall short, don't we? We fall short for minutes or hours or days or weeks or months or even years by allowing other things to have the utmost place in our affections where only Jesus, our loving Savior and gracious Lord, Deserves to be. And a big point I tried to make last week, it's important as we carry over into this week's discussion on Nehemiah's fasting and prayer, is that when God allows prolonged seasons of hardship into our lives, it's not necessarily an indication of his judgment. However, it is a gracious, disciplinary way of jolting us awake if we've been dozing off spiritually and neglecting the most important aspect of life, which is our relationship with him. And this is the most common backdrop that we see for fasting in scripture. Just to give full clarity, when I say fasting, I assume most of you know what I mean, but fasting is a temporary abstaining from something good. Okay, In scripture, usually it's Uh, It would have been food, okay, but abstaining from something good in order to strengthen our acceptance and expression of our need for something greater. That is God himself, right? But usually some specific outworking of his grace in our lives. John Piper says, fasting is a physical exclamation point at the end of our pleas to God, It's a way of saying with our stomach and our whole body how much we need and want and trust Jesus. That's fasting. Does that make sense? What we see in Scripture is that fasting is not masochistic and it's not moralistic. It's not masochistic and it's not moralistic. It's not masochistic in that it's not about enduring some physical discomfort in some strange, spiritualized way, and it's not moralistic in the sense that it's not about trying to perform a religious ritual that will somehow bend the will of God to our own. Okay. Fasting is not about earning the things that we pray for. It's For expressing our desperate need for God in whatever it is that we're praying for. We actually see God explain this in Isaiah 58. As people are complaining to him, which is very common. Have you noticed that? Common for us too, huh? Anyway, uh, they're saying, Hello, God, we're fasting. We're fasting. Do you see us? We're fasting. Why aren't you doing what we want? We're fasting. That's my paraphrase, but it's pretty close. (laughs) And God says, because you're just trying to manipulate me. Because you're just trying to manipulate me. Don't you think I can see that even though you're fasting, you're still engaging in all kinds of sin and wickedness? fasting is meant to be an outward display of a heart level humility before God not an alternative to it you tracking with me on that all right so that's the gist of what fasting is let's let's read Nehemiah's prayer and we'll see what fasting is really about okay picking it back up in Nehemiah 1 verse 4 <clears throat> As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. All right, so there's a lot there. But as I've already begun to explain, the main idea that I want us to see, okay, is that for God's people, seasons of combined prayer and fasting are a biblical practice. And I think what we see in Nehemiah's prayer is that it's a biblical practice for expressing three key things. Let's take them one at a time. The first thing we see from Nehemiah is that his fasting and prayer, in his fasting and prayer, he's expressing a deep longing to see God's kingdom come, okay? We see that expressed in his immediate emotional response in verse 4, right? But upon hearing of, of the brokenness the trouble and and the shame that his brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are in, he can't help but collapse and begin to weep for them, right? And we know that this is not just because he's a nationalist who who loves his home country, but Nehemiah clearly is a man who loves the Lord. We see that, really, in in so much of the language he uses in his prayer. In verse 5, when he starts praying... He's actually quoting directly from from Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, which is fascinating. The Bible nerds are going to love this, right? It's fascinating because in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying to God after having studied the words of of Jeremiah, who's talking about when the end of the exile is going to come, right? So Nehemiah is spiritually in tune. He's spiritually in tune with what God is doing because he is a man who knows and trusts the word of God. And when it comes to the promises of God in his word, he is expectant for God to fulfill those promises in order to advance his kingdom. And he wants to be a part of it. (laughs) Nehemiah wants to be a part of what God is doing. And so I know I say this every week, but I just have to. I just have to because of the implications of so much of the Bible. If you want to be someone who is in tune with God and whose desires are rightly aligned with His, you need to be in the Word There is no other way, friend. There is no other way. Maybe you're not a big reader. I hear that a lot. That's fine. That's fine. But if you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to make a little exception. You're going to have to make an exception because the primary means that God has given us for hearing his word is what? Reading it. Reading it. And so in Mosaic, we we preach the word. We gear our discipleship around the word and we try so hard to give away free resources. It will help you be able to be in the Word daily and apply it for yourself. Our our daily discipleship guides do that. For this 21-day fast, there's a resource I'll talk about towards the end that we we have for you that's going to point you to the Word. There are a, a handful of books in our lobby that if you want to go deeper in the Word, will help you to do that. We have study Bibles on hand that will help you understand difficult interpretive things in the Bible as you're reading. If you want to be a follower of Christ who is in tune with God and what he is doing and long to see his kingdom come, you must be in the word. You must be in the word. But maybe you're just busy, right? (laughs) You're just busy. I hear that a lot too. I get that one. I'm married four kids under nine, pastor a church full of young families. Nehemiah was one of the right-hand men to the Persian king who ruled an empire of 2.1 million square miles, the largest empire in the world up to that time. I think Nehemiah was busy. I think Nehemiah was busy too, which just goes to show that it's a matter of prioritization. (laughs) It's a matter of prioritization. So the question is, what is it that you really want? What is it that you really want? Is Jesus your Savior and your Lord and your King? Do you long to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do you want to be doing the will of God with your life? Do you want to see the church thrive on its mission with Jesus to seek and save the lost? you want to be a part of what God's doing in our time? I invite you. If your answer is yes, I invite you to get into the Word and to fast with us for the next 21 days. Jesus says it's not a matter of if his disciples will fast. It's a matter of when. Okay, Matthew 9, 14 and 15 says, Then the disciples of John came to him, that is Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn? As long as the bridegroom is with them, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's talking about himself here. He's saying, why would my disciples be fasting while I'm with them? Right? I'm their king. They should be rejoicing right now that I'm, I'm here with them. But there will be a future time when I go away, and in that time they'll fast again. The bridegroom language is for the sake of the church who is the bride of Christ. So he's saying that in the last days, which we're living in now, we, the church, will fast because we, we long for the day that he will return, take us home, complete our process of redemption, and make all things new. So this is the first thing that Christian fasting is about. It's about the advancement of Jesus's kingdom. Jesus himself had actually been fasting in Matthew chapter 4 before he began his earthly ministry, and the enemy comes to tempt him, and look how he responds, Matthew 4. It says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Logical, okay. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, quoting the word, Deuteronomy 8, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Christian fasting is a time not where we simply abstain from eating or some other regular activity just for the sake of abstaining. It's a time where we abstain from something in order to recenter ourselves on the will of God. In the time when we would be doing that thing that we're abstaining from, we we feast on the Word of God. We allow our, our withdrawal, whether it's hunger pains or inclination to reach for our phone and just mindlessly scroll social media or regular habit of turning on Netflix to veg out. We redirect, we redirect our longing towards the thing that we most ultimately want, Christ. And we pray that we would be people who do not waste our freedom living for the flesh but who would increasingly live to see God's kingdom grow through the spread of the gospel and the flourishing of the church. Now, I want to make one more little comment before we move on to the next aspect of fasting. Maybe you're here, and you're like, okay, Tad. Like I, I see this Nehemiah guy, and, and you know I, I see that he's a great man of God, and I hear you saying that fasting is a time for us to express our deep longing for the kingdom of God to advance or whatever, but I don't really grasp all that yet. I don't really grasp all that yet. I'm just here exploring my faith, and I want to want Jesus more, but I'm, I'm just not there yet. Maybe that's you. If that's you. I would just say, this fast is for you too. This fast is for you too. If you're a seasoned believer who's longing for the kingdom of God to come, and you really know what that means, praise God if you're a younger believer and you just know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord and you want to know him better and understand the will of God for your life better, amen, you're, you're welcome as well to, to join us. Okay. So uh, the first thing we see from Nehemiah in his time of prayer and fasting is that he is longing to see God's kingdom come. The work of rebuilding Jerusalem has been halted. He is grieved by that. Okay? And so he wants to see it continue. In our time, a practical application is really the work of the fact that the, the, the work of Jesus' church has been largely halted in, in so many ways due to this new kind of pandemic scarred world that we're living in. But I love something David Snelling said the other day in an offering talk. It's a real mic dropper. He said COVID can't stop the gospel. And so it should not stop us as the church from being faithful either. That's going to be a big aspect of my prayerfulness over the next several weeks, that God would revive his church out of our stay-at-home mindsets and stir us up afresh to love and good works as we strive to be not neglecting to meet and not neglecting to be the church together. But the next thing we see expressed by Nehemiah is a pronounced sense of lament and contrition over sin. A pronounced sense of lament and contrition over sin. Repentance is one of the most common reasons that we see throughout the Bible for God's people to fast. And so uh, in this sense, fasting is an expression of remorse and sorrow for how we've sinned against God, both sins of commission and sins of omission. Nehemiah says this, doesn't he, in the passage. He says, God, your people have all sinned, and I'm included in that, Lord. I'm included in that. I have sinned. My family has sinned by, he says, acting corruptly against you. There's the commission, the actual sins of transgression. Then he says, by not keeping the statutes and rules that you have laid out for us. So there's the sin of omission. The sin not just of what they've actively done wrong, but what they have passively forgotten or neglected to do that was right. And as I said, this is perhaps the most common reason for fasting in the Scriptures. A couple other examples would first be in 1 Samuel chapter 7. God's people had largely done away with worshiping him in the tabernacle as he had outlined in the law for them. And they had basically been trying to use the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. Right? They're trying to use the Ark as a good luck charm in their battles with foreign nations to their own demise. Side note, we would never do that, would we? (laughs) We would never do that ignore God all week long, and then come to church as a kind of bartering chip, you know, in hopes that God will keep doing things for us. We wouldn't do that now. All right. Sorry. Verse 2. From the day that the ark was, was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord." And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Another similar instance further along in the narrative, just before Judah is taken away into captivity, um, the prophet Joel says this, says, "'Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. "'Wail, O ministers of the altar. "'Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, "'because grain offering and drink offering "'are withheld from the house of your God.'" Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Skip down to chapter two, he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and, and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from, over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. So, in both of these instances, just like in Nehemiah, God's people had been living in unrepentant sin worshiping idols and neglecting to worship the Lord in all of the ways that he had outlined for them. And so they are called together by their leaders to fast all together corporately as they seek his forgiveness and hope that rather than judge them, he might see their contrite hearts and restore them instead. I love how he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Rend your hearts, not your garments. In the Old Testament, people would often tear their clothes as a way of displaying their grief. But the prophet Joel was clarifying that God is less concerned with outward, theatric displays, and he's more concerned with our hearts being broken over our sin against him. That's contrition. That's contrition. Now last week I went through a lot of the ways that we as Christians today sin against God by worshiping the modern idols of our time in exchange for Christ. And so as we embark on 21 days of fasting and prayer, I would strongly urge you to consider your life and examine your heart for any sins that you need to identify and put away. I doubt any of us are going home and bowing down to idols made out of carved wood. But that's only because we have more advanced technology than they did 3,000 years ago, right? We're still prone to bow down to the idol of materialism by just accumulating more and more stuff that, instead of filling us up, just leaves us feeling like we need more and more to be content. We may not think that our provision comes from some sun god, okay, but that's just because our false god that we think can supply all of our needs goes by another name, Amazon. Or the idol of pleasure, right? By overindulging in good things like food or alcohol or some form of entertainment like video games or or Netflix series or the NFL network. Or maybe indulging in some kind of secret sin like porn that promises affirmation and comfort but it leaves us feeling empty and sick. We may not frequent pagan temples to feast on forbidden foods and engage in forbidden acts, but that's just because our homes and our pockets are full of black mirrors that are just entryways into any twisted fantasy that we can conceive of. And I'm not just talking about pornography, as though that's the only kind of entertainment that people numb their souls with. Ladies, So many of these Netflix shows are like the millennial version of romance novels, and you know it, and you need to quit. Sorry about that. Had to say it. Or the idol of power and exaltation, right? By getting engulfed in workaholism. Maybe it's not alcohol for you, it's work, because you want to be seen as successful and important. You want to be the one in charge. Or maybe you use gossip to make yourself feel like you're on some inner circle with secret knowledge about other people that you can selectively reveal in order to pridefully boost your own ego your sense of importance or maybe maybe your idols just self just yourself so you dabble in some combination of all these things because you're you're always thinking about numero uno you're always thinking about yourself and what would make you happy rather than what would serve others or what christ might want for you and honestly maybe you wouldn't even realize this unless the Lord or someone close revealed it to you. But because of your self preoccupation, man, people can't even have a conversation with you without you just turning it to yourself. <laughs> someone comes with a prayer request and you one up them with your own prayer request. Anyway. These are just a few of the most common root idols. Money, pleasure, power, self. I don't know what your brand of sin is, but I'm willing to bet that you do. I'm willing to bet you do. But If you're a believer, when you just sit quietly for a minute, that the Spirit probably brings something to mind. Maybe subconsciously that's why you try to never sit Quietly for a minute, because you'd rather drown it out, but I would really just encourage you to be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Maybe for the first time in your life, be honest with yourself about how you're sinning against the Lord and the ways that you're living. I get that this is not fun, and that it doesn't feel good, but guys, there's really only two options. Two options. Number one, you can try to be honest and humble yourself before the Lord for ways that you may need to repent and draw near to him through prayer and fasting. That's the first option. Or you can keep living in a way where you are deceiving yourself. To think that you're good when really... You're actually living in open rebellion against God. Too stubborn, prideful, and hard-hearted to realize that your soul is in danger of walking away from the God who loves you so much (laughs) and who's calling you back to himself if you would just listen. And so let me just say one more thing on this. Because Nehemiah, is in tune with the Lord, and he has a a good grasp on the word. He leans heavily on the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God, doesn't he? God is a covenant-keeping God. Nehemiah is not afraid to confess his sin because he knows that there is no question. There's no question as to whether or not God loves his people and will keep his promise to restore his people if they will simply return to him with a genuine heart. I'm not saying that there are never any consequences for our sin or that there is never any need for you to apologize to someone or make amends to someone for how you have sinned against them, for the effects of your sin. You, You may need to do that. You may need to do that. And I trust that the Spirit will prompt you if that's necessary. But what I am saying, look right at me. You don't need to be afraid to be honest with the Lord. You don't need to be afraid to be honest with the Lord about what you've done or where the state of your heart has been, okay? First of all, give you a little insight. He already knows. He's God. You're not hiding it from him. But second of all, God never changes. (laughs) God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same God that Nehemiah knew promised to keep his covenant with Israel, promises to keep his covenant with us. 1 John 189 if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves the truth is not in us but if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness it's that simple that is good news that is good news Brother, sister, whatever sin you may be wrestling with, Whatever sins of omission that you may be in a cycle of, not reading the word, not being in prayer, not being generous to your church, not being a faithful witness who looks for opportunities to share Jesus with others, not being a husband that lays his life down for his bride, not being a wife who serves her husband with a happy heart, not being parents who are showing a Christ-like example to their kids. Friends, Jesus went to the cross For you. Jesus went to the cross for you. Do you know that? For your alcoholism, for your porn addiction, for your materialism, for your anger, for your passivity, for your breakdowns of faith, for your sin. For your sin. And he has nailed every bit of it to the cross. Past, present, and future and he has covered it with his blood so that you might be forgiven and you might be cleansed. A call to repent and fast is not a call to be ashamed or a call to be condemned. It's a call to return to the God who loves you so much that despising your shame, he laid down his life to decimate your condemnation to remove your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. It's a call to stop running from the God who loves you. Stop running from God because you think he might hurt you and run to him. He wants to help you. He wants to heal you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that the Lord may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55. Church, I'm your pastor, and I am a sinner. I'm a sinner. I have my own ways that I struggle to trust the Lord. I have my own idols that I have to keep throwing down. I have a heart prone to wander. That if I neglect to keep a good watch on it, it will wander away from God just like you. And I intend to return to the Lord and seek his grace myself for these things as we fast over the next three weeks. Will you come with me? will you come with me? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Fasting is an opportunity to express our deep longing for the kingdom of God to come, but it's also an opportunity to express a pronounced sense of lament and contrition over our sin. Listen, not because we have a whimsical God who, if we catch him on a good day, might just forgive us if he feels like it but because we have a God who has literally died to forgive us and who promises to restore us again and again and again all the way to the end. So will you fast with me? And every time we feel a tinge of hunger or desire for something that we're abstaining from, stand in wonder and awe over the love that remembers no wrongs we have done that though he's omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum, but he casts them away into a sea without bottom or shore, that though our sins there are many, his mercy is more. This is what fasting is about, expressing lament and contrition over our sin, but also expressing a renewed sense of amazement with the gospel. All right, finally we see at the end of the passage in verse 11, that a combined time of fasting and prayer can express a desperate desire for God's gracious help with a legitimate need. Nehemiah is most specifically asking that God would allow him to be a part of bringing restoration to Israel by being a leader who could help with the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. Obviously, that's a big request. Okay, He was risking his livelihood to attempt his, <clears throat> this request to the king. Uh, and willingness to allow him to leave and go home. So he, he pleads with God to give him success and mercy in the sight of King Artaxerxes. And as with the other points of what fasting expresses, we see this all throughout Scripture as well. Uh, at, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, surely this is a big part of Jesus' fast to consecrate himself for the huge task of his earthly ministry that he knows is going to end with his own death. In Acts, in chapter 14, the church fasts as they are seeking God's help for nominating elders to shepherd them. Now, the reality is we should always live our lives realizing that we are in desperate need of God's gracious help, right? We're always in need of his grace and his help. But fasting and prayer are appropriate when there is something in front of us, something before us for which we really need a breakthrough, so to speak. Okay. We've already talked about some of these. Could be that your church is going through a tough season, is evidently in need of a mighty move of God's grace to move forward in a healthy way, or maybe there's some besetting sin in your life that you are longing for a greater and more permanent deliverance from. Or maybe you have a wayward family member or wayward family members whose hearts you're longing to see the Lord work in. Or perhaps there's a big, potentially life-altering decision or event coming up before you, and you, you really need the Lord's wisdom to navigate it. Or maybe you're in the midst of some difficult trial that you are desperate for the Lord to make His presence known in and to help you see how He's working it out for your good and your joy that he might sustain your faith through it. Based on my conversations with a lot of you, I'm pretty sure this covers about 90% of us. Many of us are in seasons where we feel like we really just need a breakthrough of God's gracious help in our lives. Fasting increases the intensity of our appeals to God for his help. Whereas Piper says it's the the exclamation point at the end of our pleas. It's the declaration that more so than we even need food, we need him. We need him. We need his help for whatever is in front of us, all right? So we're God's people. Seasons of combined prayer and fasting are a biblical practice for expressing a deep longing to see God's kingdom come, a pronounced sense of lament and contrition over sin, and a desperate desire for God's gracious help with a legitimate need. We've seen all of these through Nehemiah's prayer this morning. But before we close, I have one more practical thing I need to clarify for the sake of our fast together. Every Christian fast should be gospel-motivated and Bible-saturated, but the specifics should be tailored to the individual who's fasting. Okay? By specifics, I mean when, from what, and to what extent. Now, to be honest, the reason that I put forward a 21-day fast for us is just because that's a common practice among many believers who do a corporate fast. Other than uh, Daniel, who fasts for three weeks, uh, I don't know if there's anything more spiritual to that number, okay? I'm not getting into numerology here or anything. It's just a, just a good amount of time for us to come together and recenter ourselves. And so my plan is to start tomorrow and then go through the first week of March, but Feel free to amend that for yourselves if if need be, okay? Another good reason to go for 21 days is because, as I said, we have a free resource uh, for anyone who'd like to pick one up on your way out. It's on the back table uh, back there today, and it's a a guided 21-day devotional journal really to help you in your time with the Lord as you are fasting. Now, as for the uh, what from portion, the guide is going to get into this some, but please don't think that I'm gonna be fasting from food for 21 days. Okay? Have you seen me? All right, like that's not gonna that's not gonna happen, okay? I'm not a super seasoned faster, okay? And so if you're not a super seasoned faster, I don't recommend that you try something extreme like that either. You're gonna pass out and we're gonna have to come get the paramedics to revive you, okay? So <laughs> there. There are several different kinds of fasts that you can do, and and mine's going to be some combination of of the ones that are presented there. Now, a a Daniel fast, okay, you've probably heard that. A Daniel fast is traditionally understood as a fast from everything except fruits and vegetables. A liquid fast would be a fast from everything, um, from all solid food. You could also do a kind of intermittent type fast, okay? I know I'm not talking about the diet fad, but don't use this as an opportunity to lose 10 pounds, the Lord sees your heart, okay? But you could fast Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or every other day. There, there's a lot of ways you could, you could go at it. Also, some folks, for health reasons that you know about, if you have one, should not be fasting from food, okay? And so in that case, you could do something like a technology fast. And if I haven't made this clear enough already. Even if you don't have health concerns, you might should fast from social media or streaming services, or video games, if that's your thing, okay, for a little while. That that might be just as hard for you, if not harder, than going without meals. i would just say this, whatever you choose to do for your fast, choose something that's really a fast. <laughs> choose something that's really a fast. Don't be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna just eat fruits and vegetables, and then like be up at like 11 o'clock at night eating strawberry sherbet ice cream and you know, corn tortilla chips, okay? Or I'm going to fast from social media and then spend your extra time playing iPhone games or catching up on the latest Netflix series. Or I'm going to fast three days a week, and every other day you're eating three, you know, McDonald's cheeseburgers or something, okay? If you're going to fast, then fast. If you're going to fast, then fast. And keep the fast that you commit to. And do it in a way that takes seriously the heart of fasting, okay? A ton of great quotes for you to think about regarding your fasting in the 21-day guide, but one that is particularly helpful is by the author who wrote the guide. He says, fasting is more about replacing than it is about abstaining, okay? It's more about replacing than it is about abstaining, replacing normal activities with focused times of prayer and feeding on the word of God. Hope that you'll join us. Hope that you'll join me for this next 21 days, this next three weeks as we fast and pray together as the body of Christ. I'll be praying for you. And I ask that you'll pray for me as well. Because I know we all have our specific breakthroughs that we're hoping for and seeking the Lord for. Make sure to be in regular communication this goes without saying. Hopefully, you already are, but be in regular communication with your community group if you're in one, so you can be sharing what the Lord is is doing in you throughout this time, and to be encouraging one another to keep the commitments that we've committed to. All right. Well, let's go. Let's eat some good food tonight because that's really what the Super Bowl is about, right? And then let's fast. And let's pray to the Lord humbly for the next 21 days and see what he might do. Let's pray. Father, as always, you are so good. And we thank you for your word. God, even the parts of your word that we're, honestly, maybe we avoid, like Nehemiah. What in the world is that? But God, you have just packed your word with rich gospel truth. And we're so thankful for that. We're thankful for how it instructs us and how it builds us up and grows us more into conformity with Christ. And so, Father, I just pray for myself, for my family, and for this church body, for these men and women here who are about to embark on a 21-day fast as they seek you, God, because they desire. Maybe their desires don't always line up like they're supposed to, and they know that, but, God, they desire to see your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in their lives, through their lives. They want to be a part of what you're doing in the world right now, God, because you are doing things. You are moving. You are acting. You are seeking and saving the lost in this world right now, and they want to be a part of it. Father, for all of us, I know, perhaps we have something to repent for. So, Father, I just pray that you would... Receive us as we repent. Give us grace. Give us deliverance from these things that so easily entangle us. Help us to lay them aside and run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who for our sake endured the cross. And Father, for those of us who have some specific legitimate need for which we see no way forward other than for you to intervene, for you to come and give your gracious help, God, would you be with us? Would you be near to us in that and show us that whatever you do, God, it's for our good. It's for your glory. It's for our joy. Those things are synonymous. Lord, be with us now. Would you bless this time as we fast and pray and seek your face? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.